In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So earlier this year, we published an in-depth series about masculinity and the Christian religion. In particular, why it is that nearly all Christian churches the world over, women outnumber men. And one of the sources for that series was a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And today on the show, I talk with the author of that book, David Murrow. Uh, David and I talk about the significant disparity in the sex ratio of Christian churches, the factors that led to that gender gap. Why fewer men in the pews typically leads to an overall decline in congregation attendance. What some churches are doing to make the church more man-friendly. And why newer megachurches have been more successful at attracting men than older mainline churches. And why one branch of Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, hasn't suffered the same decline in male attendance that's plagued other traditional denominations. Whether you enjoyed our series on Christianity and manhood, have wondered why you find going to church so unbearable, or simply enjoy discussions on the intersection of faith, culture, and masculinity, you're going to love this podcast. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash murrow. David Murrow, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Good to be with you. Uh, So you wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church, uh, and we used it as a source on a series about... Christianity and manhood uh, about a month ago, mm-hmm. and sort of the muscular Christianity movement that happened in the nineteenth, late nineteenth and early twentieth century. And I want to get you on the show to discuss more about the research you've done about men in the Christian church today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your book's called "Why Men Hate Going to Church." So the underlying assumption is that men don't really go to church. Uh, so start off. Can you give us a big picture view of the engagement of men within Christian churches, and you know what does the ratio of men to women look like in most congregations? Well, the average. Ch- church in North America draws an adult crowd that's 61% female and 39% male. That's sort of the average. Um, There are certain subsets of Christianity where the ratio might be three to one, four to one. African-American churches tend to be very heavily uh, female. And then overseas, we, uh, I get emails from pastors all the time who are asking me, how do I get any men involved in my church? You know, we had a leadership conference in Nicaragua and you know, 90% of the leaders who showed up were women. So there's definitely a disengagement among men from institutional religion in the West and in Christianity in particular. And uh, I mean, I think many people, the common explanation for this is that, well, the gender gap exists because women are just more inherently spiritual, religious across the board. Uh, Does this gender gap exist in all religions then? Well, the statement you made is slightly true. Uh, There was a Pew study that came out in early 2016 that confirmed that women are slightly more spiritual in their attitudes. But when it comes to religious practice, in most religions, uh, women and men have roughly equal participation. The two outliers are Islam, where men are much more involved in participating in religion than women. And then Christianity, where women are way more involved than men. So um, Christianity is really the only major world religion that has the size of gender gap that we see. All the other religions are either uh, slightly more male or uh, quite closely balanced with a slight uh, preference with females. So, I mean, when did this disparity begin? Because I think a lot of people say, well, this is just a a recent phenomenon, right? Is this a long-term problem that Christianity has had? Um, When did this disparity between men and women in the pews start? Well, according to uh, a Catholic scholar by the name of Lee Pottles, the the disparity really began shortly after the Eastern Church and the Western Catholic Church uh, uh, separated around the year 12-1300. It's when a period of bridal mysticism kind of took over the monasteries, the Catholic monasteries during the Middle Ages. And we began to see the withdrawal of men from churches. Men took a more passive role. They weren't even allowed to go up and accept communion, had to be put on their tongues. Um, There was really only work for the priests, and the laymen had nothing to do. 
with the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, we saw a fresh awakening among men. We saw much higher men, male participation in religion around the colonial times. But then in the Victorian era, we began to see men uh, withdrawing from the church again. Uh, men left homes to find work in mines, mills, and factories. And the people left behind were women, children, and aged men too old to work in the, in the mines. And that is that has been the uh, the predominant demographic in the Western church for 200 years. There are lots of women, lots of children, lots of aged men, older men, but the young virile man, the working man, the blue collar man has been conspicuously absent uh, with the, the, the sole exception being the 1950s. Uh, we, after World War II, we saw the, the joiner builder generation came back to church in force. The church grew. It set the stage for the, uh, the growth of the megachurch and, and some of the phenomena we see today. But if you're asking about the long-term trends, yes, Christianity has always had a gender gap, and uh, revivals and awakenings have brought men back for a little while, but then the churches tend to re-feminize over time. What was it about bridal mysticism that turned men off back in the 1200s? Oh, there was lots of talk about uh, you know Jesus uh, suckling at his breast, a lot of imagining him as, as female. It was a very cultish time in the church. The monasteries... Uh, there was a lot of homosexuality in the monasteries and uh it just it, it really the 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 kind of the straight guy of, of the year 1300 re there really wasn't much for him to do in the church the clergy definitely professionalized evangelism and church growth was de-emphasized and with this very institutional structure that was controlled by eggheads and uh it, there just wasn't much for the layman to do and so we see a withdrawal of men and a pouring of more feminine sentiments out of the church. Right. And you still see those sentiments today. And like you talk about, we'll talk about this later, but like praise and worship music, sort of Jesus is your, you know, a lover that you're supposed to embrace. Well, that's driven more by market forces. Uh, women buy about 75% of the Christian music. A lot of these women are either single or they're trapped in loveless marriages. So the, the image of Jesus as a lover, a protector, someone who's right there by your side, a comforter. These images are very, very comforting to women who do not experience the love of a man in their in their daily life. Uh, Jesus kind of is portrayed as this um, cryptic sort of uh, substitute lover for the man you don't have, and and that that so the reason we see so much feminine imagery in praise and worship today is because that's who buys the CDs, that's who downloads the songs. Are these women who are looking for love? Right, and I mean, why does that? I mean, I guess I can see why that would turn guys off. You know, guys don't want uh, Jesus as a boyfriend, uh, quote unquote. But like, what what are men looking for, like in an, a god to worship? I mean, it seems like women are more relational. What is it that men are looking for? Well, and uh, aren't getting. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we just uh, the United States just elected a strong man president, and with with uh, heavy heavy support from men, and I think that's a window into the type of leader that men are looking for. Um, we, we, we tend to gravitate toward a leader who is leading us onto the battlefield rather than into the bedroom. And a lot of the sentiment in praise and worship today definitely feels like Jesus is our lover rather than our leader. So, you know, we used to have very militant uh, battle-oriented hymns, you know, the Battle Hymn of the Republic or A Mighty Fortress is Our God or Onward Christian Soldiers. And what's interesting is in the most feminized denominations, the more liberal mainline denominations, we see those songs have been banned. You know, they're politically incorrect. You can't sing a song with any battle imagery in it because it's considered warlike and too violent. And uh, so this maternalism in these churches is definitely driving men away because there's just nothing to interest them. Well, I mean, and it, what's, what's interesting, you know, this, you know, Christianity was founded by a man and he had 12 of his male comrades helping him out. And much of the leadership in most Christian churches remains male. So, I mean, it is odd that more women than men are attending. And often, you know, Christianity gets criticized as being patriarchal, but at the same time, there's more women attending. So, we've talked about some of the historical factors, but I mean, what are some of the other factors, sort of, um, you know, micro factors that are influencing uh, male attendance and engagement in Christian churches? Well, let me let me clarify a comment that you just made. You, you had said that there's a perception that churches are male-dominated. If you're talking about that relatively thin stratum of paid professional clergy, then yes, by all means, churches are male-dominated. But really, when you get beyond that stratum, if you talk about people who volunteer in church, people who work on the church payroll, uh, people who run the ministries, 
overwhelmingly female. Um, 70, about 75% of paid Christian workers are women. Um, that's talking about the church secretary, missionaries, support personnel, etc. And they bring their feminine sensibilities to their ministries. You know, we've, we had a balance in the church for hundreds of years. Uh, the clergy and the elders, the ruling elders of a church, were all men. But the lay leaders in the church were women. And so you had a strong masculine sensibility directionally with the church from the pulpit and from the decision-making process. But then the day-to-day ministries had the characteristic feminine relational uh, feel to it. You had a yin and a yang. You had a, a, a masculine and a feminine. You had a, a lion and a lamb. T- today, especially in those mainline churches, as men have withdrawn from the formal leadership posts and women have taken those over, there's no countervailing masculine spirit in those churches. Everything is about nurture. Everything is about relationships. Everything is about, it's not about doctrine anymore or great truths. It's about how can we comfort these oppressed people? And although that would resonate with some men, a lot of men simply see that as weakness and they choose to withdraw. And I mean, so that kind of goes to one of the points you made that one reason that men say they don't go to church is that uh, it's it's too safe. There's no risk taking or innovation going on. A lot of meetings talking about relationships and like they feel like the meetings are unproductive. I mean, in what other ways do churches squander, you know, a man's general tendency? And again, we're talking generalities here mm-hmm. um, for in- innovation and risk taking. Well, maybe I could answer your question this way. Um, we find that church plants have no problem attracting men, a church plant being a, a new church that's founded in a new area of town or a new building. Usually those tend to be 50-50. And I think the reason why is because a man's natural gifting is very valued in a church plant. You have to, there's a, first of all, there's a heavy pressure to bring new people in, evangelism, confronting people with the truths of the Bible. You, you have to get out there or the church is going to close its doors. Yeah, strategic planning, uh, strategizing, uh, these sorts of things that, that men, you know, men love to play stratego and, you know, war games and these from the time they're children. Strategy is definitely a very, uh, tends to be a more masculine trait. Men love to strategize. Um, you got to build a building. You got to buy a building. You got to remodel a building. You got to paint the building. You got to do the things that men tend to do. Once a church institutionalizes, once the building is bought, once the programs are running, now the, the masculine gifts that were so valuable during the planting phase become liabilities. Um, what you need at that point is a steady, gentle ministry that keeps the children happy, that keeps the women volunteering, that keeps the building maintained. And the number of things for men to do declines rapidly. So what we're seeing is young churches do very well attracting men, but over time, the men become dis- disinterested and disengaged because their natural gifting is not only seen as unnecessary, but it's often seen as harmful. Uh, because, you know, when you're talking about disruptive change and culture change and these sorts of things upset people, uh, and, and that's, that is antithetical to a maintenance mode, which is where most churches are today. Particularly, uh, you talk about the book Mainline Protestant Churches that are, that are the struggling the most because they've they're established, they've been around for decades, centuries. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the other hand, these mega churches that are popping up, these are the ones that are really doing well with men and also just in, they're doing better than the mainline Protestant churches. Well, the, the mainline is fighting a lot of headwinds. A, it's the feminization, the withdrawal of men. B, the way they're administered. Uh, their minist- their uh, administrative structures were created in the 17 and 1800s when there was no internet, there was no telephone. Uh, and the biggest problem then was heresy. You had to control individual congregations out on the prairie to keep some pastor from going off and preaching that Jesus was a unicorn or some crazy nutty thing like that. So what they did is they created all these committees and subcommittees and levels of control. Every Presbyterian church is under the, under the governance of a session, a synod, a a presbytery, a synod, and a general assembly, four levels of control on every congregation. So what that leads to is a very slow, deliberative decision process drives men up the wall. You know, men are used to the business the, the, the fields of business, sports, these sorts of places where they predominate, where decisions are made quickly, uh, where people's feelings get hurt and we move on. Uh, in churches, it doesn't work that way because there are so many levels of control and so many ways that innovation can be stopped in order to preserve relationships. Uh, the men who lead in church get extremely frustrated because things move so slowly and every decision is looked at through the lens of who is this going to hurt and how do we keep people, keep, you know, 
happy and nurtured and these sorts of things. So it, it, the, the main line is really struggling with a culture that was built for an agrarian age and that, um, that with a, a, a governance structure that, it, that really, really frustrates man. So, uh, going back to the mega mega church thing. So, the, so the mega church does have a very uh, business ethos. Like you walk into one, there's mission statements everywhere. Uh, yeah. They've got uh, you can take courses on leadership. They have courses on finances, and then you get like a very dynamic uh, lesson, right, or, or sermon from a very dynamic minister. Um, but you also talk about in the book one of the things that might appeal to men that mega churches do is that they they separate their vertical and horizontal worship. Uh, can you describe what that means and why you think smaller ch- churches stumble by trying to combine the two together? Well, yeah, let, let me set that up by saying that the mega churches, all the disadvantages we talked about, the main line, the mega churches have dispensed with those. They tend to be very a very short. But first of all, there's no denominational structure over most of them. Decisions are made all on the local level. They're usually led by a CEO type person who really could have made an impression in the business world. You know, usually more aggressive, a good communicator, good looking, good baritone voice, uh, you know, great communicator. Uh, that that type of guy is almost always at the head of a megachurch. You know, you don't have Casper Milk Toast as the pastor of the local megachurch. It's always a guy with some charisma. And he has a very free hand to move quickly and to adapt and innovate when opportunities or problems arise in the church, as they inevitably do. Uh, that's one of the reasons megachurches are, you know, just killing the traditional churches because their their governance structure and the people that they have in charge. Now, back to answer your question, though, you uh, restate it again. I, I lost it a little bit. It was about vertical oh, and yeah. horizontal right. worship. So then in the actual worship services, the, the megachurches are very, very aware of men's needs. Uh, the two most famous megachurches of the 1980s and 90s are Willow Creek and Saddleback. And both of those churches were founded by very charismatic men who recognized that if a guy would come to church, they would get the family in the deal. So what's interesting is Bill Hybels, the founder of Willow Creek, started off his church with a mythical parishioner called unchurched harry and he built the entire church around that man's sensibilities and needs he created a church that that man would come to and feel comfortable enough to stay and hear the gospel brick warren did the exact same thing five years later in southern california he had a mythical parishioner called saddleback sam again neither of these megachurch innovators targeted women at all that's not to say they didn't care about women but they realized that men were the first domino that had to fall if you got the man you got the family in the deal. And so they targeted their church. They built their church around men, the way the church is decorated. You won't see a lace doily. You're not going to see a flower or a ribbon. You're not going to see these uh, school-style construction paper uh, bulletin boards that you often see in family churches. Uh, they dispensed with all the frou-frou and childlike um, uh, decor, and they made their churches gender-neutral. And then they um, separated the uh, horizontal worship from the vertical worship. If, and what I mean by that is if you go to a small traditional church, you'll often have people stand up and share prayer requests or the church at some point during the worship service, the church will kind of devolve into a very large support group, you know, 80 people standing up, sharing their prayers and praises, definitely family oriented, horizontally focused on one another. If you go to a mega church, it's impossible for 3000 people to share prayer needs on Sunday morning. So what the, the brilliance of the mega church model is you focus exclusively vertically on Sunday morning. It's all upward toward God. There's very little interaction among the congregation. However, these churches realize you need a horizontal component to faith practice as well. So they push small groups relentlessly. Every week you go to a mega church, you will be invited, hectored, bothered, <laughs> they are going to get after you about being in a small group because they realize Sunday morning is completely vertical. That's the way it has to be in such a large congregation. But they realize that people need horizontal fellowship as well. They have to have human touch. And that's true for men and women. So they push these small groups relentlessly. And their model is working very well. Now they have a worship service on Sunday morning that is focused upward toward God, which men appreciate. They don't necessarily want a support group on Sunday morning. And then they have a vehicle of midweek small groups, which allows men to let their hair down a little bit more, be a little more intimate and um, real with one another, get to know people on a closer basis. And this model seems to be working very, very well in the megachurches these days. Well, in going back, so in the worship service, right, the, it's presented by a very dynamic 
uh, pastor. Like I, I'm I'm from Oklahoma. Oh, Life Church is Craig Rochelle, huge here. Yeah. Craig Rochelle and I've been to it. Uh, I go to you know every now and then, and the guy is like he's impressive. Mm-hmm. Like he's charismatic, dynamic. He's buff. Like he works out. And he talks about working out. So I can see how a lot of men. Uh, are are drawn to that right mm-hmm. um but then whenever the the music comes on you don't see a lot of guys singing <laughs> the songs because they're still doing the sort of the praise and worship kind of romance stuff yes they are although things are getting better um one of the one of the i think our ministry church for men was really the first one to get out there and call worship uh leaders out on this issue and heard from quite a few um and we've kind of started a quiet revolution in worship music to reconnect the militant side of our faith to our music and we are slowly seeing the uh, love songs to jesus get put on the shelf and we're seeing more songs about god's majesty his power uh his ability to do miracles uh we're actually even seeing some mild battle imagery coming back into some of the songs and the other thing that drive, used to drive men crazy was what, what, what was called the 7-Eleven song. You sang seven words 11 times, and it just repeated over and over again. And you'd slowly work your way into a worship coma. <laughs> that That is starting to go away. But the big challenge for men is familiarity. Uh, one thing that's, that I'm sure you understand about men is if we feel incompetent at something, we simply don't do it. We stop doing it. And uh, one of the big challenges with praise and worship today is uh, is that we've abandoned the hymnal in favor of the big screen in the front, the projection screen. When we had a hymnal, we had a canon of about 250 songs that everybody knew. We knew how to sing them. We could sing them without the the lyrics, the, the uh, notes on the page. We basically knew the lyrics, you know, Amazing Grace and the, these sorts of songs. We all knew them. When the computer control projection screen came into the sanctuary about 20 years ago, we went from 200 songs everybody knows to 200,000 songs nobody knows. I mean, you can put anything on that screen. And so what we're seeing is worship leaders around the country are putting unknown songs up every week in an effort to be cool and hip. And so the congregation doesn't sing these songs, and men in particular don't because they don't know the lyrics. They don't know the tune. It's probably keyed too high because the worship leader is a high tenor. And he's up there doing a private rock show for us while the men stand there with their hands in their pockets thinking, I wish this was over. Let's get to the sermon. So we're seeing a real participation gap in the church, not only among men, but women as well, because worship is becoming such a performance driven uh, thing. We've almost returned to medieval Catholicism, which is which was a time when the, the laity was not even allowed. They were prohibited from participating in the worship service. They had to stand mute while professional cantors performed at the altar. And we're kind of returning to that now with this professionalizing of worship. We say, hey, everybody stand up and sing, but nobody's doing it. And it's becoming a real issue with men. Right, no one knows the word. So innovate, but not too much. Don't innovate with the music. Well, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about my church here in Anchorage uh, is our worship leader always includes a couple of old hymns. And the young people really like the hymns. Uh, They're looking for something a little more rooted, a little less, you know, a little more pithy. You know, who cares if we can't understand a few of the words or, you know, there there might be a couple of archaic phrases or these or thous. What what it does is gives us a sense of of majesty, majesty and grandeur of God, rather than songs that solely talk about how my emotions are. Oh, God, I love you so much. You're so beautiful. Um, uh, you know, a lot of these songs with their very romantic lyrics or uh, emotion-laden lyrics really just don't connect to the masculine heart. Men are really more about the mission. Women are more about the relationship. And so, um, you know, our music has to reflect that. So, I mean, I think you alluded to this a bit, but I mean, why is it important for congregations to have more men in the pews? I mean, can't they get along without them? Well, what we're finding is that the congregations with the largest gender gaps tend to be the ones that are growing the slowest or actually in decline. Uh, the biggest gender gap to domination we have right now in the United States is the Episcopal Church, which lost 23% of its members in the last decade. Uh, the, the Episcopal Church will, if current trends continue, the Episcopal Church in the USA will cease to exist by about the year 2060. So the gender gap goes hand in hand with church decline. Meanwhile, if we look at the profile of growing churches, we tend to see near gender parity. Uh, men bring a certain vitality. Uh, a, a wise Texas preacher once told me that when the woman comes, you get the tithe off the grocery money. When the man comes, you get the tithe off the paycheck. 
So men tend to bring money with them. Uh, they bring uh, resources that um, that women often don't possess. And just from a from a perspective of boys growing up in the church, uh, they love to see their fathers involved. Uh, if dad is not involved, uh, boys tend to drop out of the church in much higher numbers. So if you want a healthy church that attracts all kinds of people, you have to work very hard to in, uh, attract and then engage the men. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And what do men stand to benefit from 
going to church regularly. I mean, a lot of guys, it's a waste of time, but I mean, there are some benefits to it, right? Oh, the benefits are huge. Study after study has shown a very positive correlation between mental health and church attendance. And this is true in both men and women across the globe. Also, uh, a very exhaustive study from the Heritage Foundation found a very strong correlation between church attendance and the avoidance of many social pathologies, drug use, drunkenness, um, uh, uh, violence, uh, incarceration. Uh, men who go to church are something like four and five times less likely to in engage in these behaviors than men who avoid it. Uh, one other study that came out of uh, the University of Chicago a few years ago was entitled Soft Patriarchs. It uh, studied the, the fam familial ties of irreligious men, religious men, Catholic men, Protestant men, etc. And it found that evangelical Protestant men were far and away the best fathers and husbands, as polled by their wives and by their children and by their, their habits. Uh, again, much less likely to drink to excess, much more likely to uh, provide for their families. Um, there's just a very, very strong correlation between church involvement and a host of good outcomes for men and for society. So what can congregations do to make church more male-friendly? Because like, not every church is going to be a mega church, no, right? No. I mean, is it a matter of, I mean, I've seen some churches do like these things, like when it's Super Bowl Sunday, mm -hmm. they'll have like Super Bowl Sunday sermon mm -hmm. or like Harley Sunday yeah. where like, you can wear your, is, is it, is it make doing that or is that too superficial? Does it need to be something more uh, rooted? Well, let me, let me start by saying that we tend to welcome, uh, we, we see as normal uh, things that are female oriented, whereas we tend to see things that are male oriented in the church as pandering or superficial. I'll give you an example. If a church were to announce a women's scrapbooking night or a women's quilting night or whatever, we wouldn't bat an eye. We wouldn't think twice. We would see that as a perfectly appropriate recreational activity for the women of the church. Now, if we had a men's cigar night, I can tell you most churches would be up in arms. Now, because, now, neither smoking nor quilting is mentioned in the Bible. However, we tend to see the masculine uh, activity as unchristlike, whereas the feminine one is very Christlike. Uh, going back to quilts, if we decorated our church with quilts, we say, oh, that's normal. I mean, probably half the churches in America have a quilt hanging somewhere. You know, we see that as normal church decor. If a church were to take down the quilts and put up mounted animal heads like a hunter would bring from the hunt, there would be tons of opposition to that. Now, again, how many quilts are there in the Bible? Zero. How many dead animals are there? There's a dead animal on practically every page of the Old Testament. <laughs> so but we just we tend to react negatively to anything that sort of appeals to masculine sensibilities, whereas we see those things that appeal to feminine sensibilities as perfectly normal and acceptable. So now back to your original question. Do we need to have a men's uh, truck night or, or, you know, whatever, however you phrased it, um, you know, a Harley night or a Harley event or a car show or whatever? You know, I'm I'm all about those things. If you'll attract men with those things, that's fine. But it's really not about painting a macho veneer on a feminized church. What you have to do is you've got to look down at the way you're governor, governed. You have to look at the way the church is decorated. You have to look at the way you're presenting the gospel. Are you speaking of it as a passionate, intimate relationship with a man who loves you? Or are you talking about it as a dangerous mission? Um, you know, the, the metaphors the pastor uses, the type of things the pastor speaks of from the pulpit. You mentioned Craig Groeschel is very good about talking about working out, about the adventures he goes on. Men love to hear. Men love to have a pastor they can relate to as a man. And so he's very intentional about talking about guy stuff from the pulpit. Many pastors are not. So there's just a host of things. And you know, on my website, churchformen.com, I've got a lot, you know, a lot of resources for churches that want to start to begin this process of, of making the church a more welcoming space to men and boys. And I've also got 60 pages in my book. But you know, that's just a few of them. And the nice thing, like you said, you don't have to be a mega church to attract men. Any congregation, a congregation of 50 people, can start to do little things that will attract more men. And these things do work. So in, throughout, particularly in America, um, there have been these movements to proactively go after men. And we talked about in our series a month ago about the muscular Christianity movement. Um, for those who aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit about what the muscular Christianity movement was about and was it even successful? Uh, my feeling is it was very successful. Um, muscular Christianity was a reaction to uh, industrialization. Uh, you have to understand that 
uh, the entire world was agrarian and organic before 1800. And then with the invention of the steam engine and the rise of machines, in the 1850s and 60s, we began to see a retreat of men from physical labor as machines began to take over more of the labor. And there was a real panic in our country about, you know, men being inside all the time, uh, bookish men, uh, the traditional masculine virtues that had opened up the frontier were being forgotten and lost. And that situation was particularly acute in the church because, as, as I alluded to earlier, during the Victorian era, men began to withdraw from the church in huge numbers. Uh, pastors got the reputation as being bookish, sickly, uh, girly type men. And um, so there was this movement called the Muscular Christianity Movement, which attempted to return or restore a healthy masculinity to the church to make the church welcoming to men once again. And probably the crown jewel of that moment movement was the Young Men's Christian Association, or YMCA as we know it. And they took the radical steps of bringing gymnasiums into churches. And at the time, this was considered extremely controversial. The whole idea that, that exercise and physicality was somehow could be linked to faith, that, that was completely beyond the pale. You know, coming as we did from a Puritan and Congregationalist and uh, tradition where the, the body was suspect, the whole idea that bodybuilding could be part of our Christian faith was, was completely beyond the pale. But And then another movement was the Christian camp movement. The first Christian camp was founded in the 1880s as a, as a way of getting young boys who had been civilized and sissified in the cities out into the country, uh, getting them doing guy stuff out in the country. Uh, in 1905, a fellow in England founded the Boy Scouts, and there was the Boys Brigade, Christian Service Brigade. Um, some of those are still with us today. And these were organizations that were designed to get these sissified boys out into the country and introduce them to Christ through this masculine, in this more masculine milieu than they were getting in their city life with their mothers. So, and in 1912, sort of the peak of the muscular Christianity movement was the Men in Religion Forward movement. It was a short-lived, about a, what about a year, but it was a series of revival meetings all around the country. Billy Sunday was among the speakers, and it was kind of a prototype, a forerunner to the Promise Keepers movement. Uh, large gatherings of men in different cities, listening to speakers, singing robust and roaring songs of the church. And revival, uh, actually small revival, broke out in many of these cities as men came to Accept uh, Christ and religion. The world war, the world wars of World War One and World War Two, um, really kind of uh, put church growth on hold. We began to see men going off to war. Women stayed home and and kept the hearth and the church going. But then when we saw the return of men from World War Two, we saw a robust return to the church. And guess what? The churches that men found acceptable to return to were the mainline churches. Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, etc. My own father defected from his Catholicism and became a Lutheran during that time. And the reason men found these mainline Protestant churches so attractive is because they had been the exponents of muscular Christianity. It was the Presbyterians that started church gyms. It was the Methodists who were doing uh, YMCA and Boy Scouts. These uh, mainline churches that we see as so feminized today were actually the largest proponents of muscular Christianity, this linking of manhood and Christianity. So what your, back to your original question, was the muscular Christianity movement ultimately successful? I believe it was. I believe it was responsible for the huge growth in the mainline church in post-World War II America. But that when, when the mainline churches began turning away from masculine values toward anti-war activism, uh, feminism, gay rights, this constellation of more female issues, we began to see the withdrawal of men and the implosion of those churches. So yeah, there's that feminization cycle that you talk about. Things start off robust, and then as things get established, it becomes more feminized or more nurturing. Yeah, it's more about, in the early stages of a church, it's more about, you know, it's a blazing the trail, it's pioneering, it's, it's you know, it, it just, it's more risky. Once the institutional structure is in place, the building is built, the paint is up, the carpet's down, really what is there for a man to do? All you have to do at that point is, is maintain the institution. And if you bring those trailblazing values into an established church, you just upset people. You know, you, don't, you start uh, overturning the fundraising table <laughs> in, the, um, in the narthex. So it's, 
it's a it's a definitely a, a battle for an established church to maintain a connection with men. And the way that mega churches have done that is through just continually sponsoring these big initiatives. You know, Rick Warren, 15 years ago, had this peace initiative in Rwanda, and he sent hundreds of his people over there to Africa to try to restore that country. And they've done tremendous yeoman's work over there in reestablishing an economy in, in Rwanda and bringing reconciliation between the Hutus and the Tutsis. People don't know it, but it's his church, Saddleback Church, that has been at the epicenter of those reconciliation efforts. And so he's got, Rick Warren has got this big story he tells every Sunday about what they're doing, this dangerous work they're doing all over the world. And men say, hey, here's a church that's doing something dangerous. We're not just caring for the sick locally, we are changing the world globally. And that sort of big, big picture uh, uh, tends to attract and retain men. Yeah, and I've noticed too the um, the new abolitionist movement with the sex trade. Uh, a lot of churches are using that. You're, you're, these guys are going in doing investigations with, and like it is kind of dangerous. Like they're having to like kind of be, do undercover work to bust these sex ring operations in other countries. Mm-hmm. Tremendously helpful because, yeah, as you know, every man has a natural, uh, an inborn or trained uh, instinct to protect the women around him. It's one of the core aspects of masculinity is protect the women. It's one of the first things we learn when we're little boys, protect the women. So as churches have embraced this uh, ministry to uh, hurting women around the world, men have stepped up and done a tremendously uh, courageous work in response to the needs of these women. And can you tell, talk a little about the, about the Promise Keepers movement? Because I remember as a kid back in the 90s, like you would see these things on the news all the time. They're filling giant sports arenas, stadiums, tens of thousands of men were going to these things. And then, then nowadays, like they can barely fill a venue. So what was it about the Promise Keepers um, movement that resonated with men for a moment, but no longer is as effective? Well, like anything, um, there's a tendency for the new to be exciting. If you've been to a Promise Keepers rally, uh, the first one I went to was in Seattle in 1996, flew down from Anchorage. It was the nearest one. Uh, Flew down from Anchorage with my father-in-law and a good friend of his, and we attended. I was absolutely amazed. You know, I had been a Christian at that point for 20 years, and I had never worshipped in the presence of so many men. Every time I had ever been in a worship service, there was always more women than men. The women participated more enthusiastically than the men. But going to a Promise Keepers rally was absolutely transformational for me and actually planted the seeds for my book because I I, I began asking the question, why is Promise Keepers so different than my local church? Why are men so enthusiastic in this stadium and so passive back in the church? Um, But like any movement, you know, it has its heyday, it has its peak, and then people have done it and it's been there, done that. Um, Promise Keepers also came of age right before the internet really took off. Um, and so it, I predicted it, it's probably the last mass movement of men that we're going to see, the last mass gathering of men that we're going to see, because men are gathering in virtual tribes now, online tribes, and it's very, very hard to get men to gather. Um, men can get great Bible teaching now just by clicking on their smartphones or their computers. They can hear preachers who are way better than the guy down the street. And, you know, men are reinventing the church around uh, non-traditional uh, structures. And although that works well for the tech savvy, we're seeing a lot of men who are simply giving up on the church. So uh, so back to your original question, though, why was Promise Keepers so big? It was a, it was a fresh movement. Men had been, been ignored in the church for quite a long time. It was something new and exciting and quite exhilarating. The speakers were quite good. The music was great. And it was just great to be with that many men. Uh, but I fear that that may be the last large gathering of men ever because technology is making gathering less and less uh, attractive to men. Well, you get going on that line. I mean, it seems like men are using technology to innovate. They're having virtual congregation. You can watch you know, Life Church. You can li- watch Life Church from your laptop yep. if you wanted mm-hmm. to. And I can see the benefit, right? Like you're getting something. Um, but I mean, it seems like you're missing out on something when you don't have that face to face, you know, meet space interaction. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just watching sermons on a screen is not going to get it done. But there are virtual gathering spaces where men actually interact, and those are quite positive. Um, I know there are military, there are groups of military men who continue to meet with their home group. You know, they'll be deployed to Afghanistan or, or Baghdad or Iraq or something, or Africa, and they are continue to meet with their men's group back in Houston or, or, or Columbus, Ohio, or wherever that was, through by means of technology. 
So, you know, yeah, just sitting down and watching a sermon isolates, but technology can also draw men together. And that's been one of, one of the more positive uh, things that technology has done. Yeah, one group I've seen online that has been having success getting men together in real real life is uh, the F3, I think is what they're called, Faith Family hmm. Fellowship. And basically they have these like uh, workouts in the morning. It's like a boot camp style workout and they end with a prayer or something hmm. like that. Guy's last name is Dodd. I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for a while, but that's kind of an interesting. They're kind of combining the two. It's very, uh, um, it's not centralized. It's just you can start one up and they use the internet to facilitate. Mm -hmm. Sort of like CrossFit. There's no real central organization. They're, it's very, um, uh, it's very networked, just kind of nice. Yes, very much so. But but you're right. If you if you don't regularly connect with other guys, that's that's where you're, that's really the secret sauce of the church, and it has been for two thousand years. Is not really what happens from the from the chancel from the pulpit. It's really what happens in the pews among among the men. If you have strong fellowship and a strong honeycomb of relationships in the church, the men you won't be able to pry men out of the church. You won't be able to blast them out with dynamite. But if the men don't know each other. And they just kind of go and sing the songs and listen to the sermon and drop their twenty in the plate. Uh, that that's not a that's not a recipe for success. And you know, to their credit, most churches are working very hard to get people beyond that that model of just sit passively watching. But a lot of the trends in the church today are militating against that. So when we wrote our series about uh, Christianity's manhood problem, we had lots and lots of readers chime in who were Eastern Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, wait a minute, you need to mm -hmm. check out the Eastern Orthodox Church. Like, we don't have that problem. Um, why is that? I mean, it seems like men are doing well within the Eastern Orthodox Church. You mentioned way back at the beginning of the podcast when the, 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 the problem in the Western Church began when there was the schism between the Eastern mm -hmm. and the, the Western. Um, so what, what's the Eastern Orthodox Church doing differently than Western churches that have been able to maintain a more parity amongst the sexes in the pews? Well, I mean, you're right. The Eastern Church never did feminize. There was no, never the bridal mysticism and the, the, the monastic problems of the 12s and 1300s. Um, though, so, uh, and they've, they've always allowed married priests, which has cut down on the, the incidence of homosexuality among their leaders. So um, there hasn't been this this wall between the priesthood and laity that there was during Catholicism. That you know Pope Francis is working very hard to break that wall down, but it's still there. Um, so back to the Eastern Orthodox, though, uh, there have been significant uh, pockets of that religion here in America. Uh, I've attended some Eastern Orthodox worship services. They're very long. They're very rigorous. They often take two hours or more. Um, you stand most of the time. There's Chair, there are chairs, and you're allowed to sit only during the homily, which is usually a just a short part of the service. Uh, the uh, there's incense and candles and bells, and it's just very ancient feeling. So um, it's a rigorous type of worship, and um, but I would say Eastern Orthodoxy, as strong as it is with men, is not really catching fire with men. Uh, we're not seeing a huge growth uh, evangelistically. We're not seeing a lot of men converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. So uh, I'm not sure that's a model that a lot of modern men are going to go for, but um, I think within their structures and within their, their priesthood and, and the way they operate, there, is, there are the seeds of lots of good ideas. Um, it's just, it's only going to attract a man who's looking for a very ancient and traditional form of worship. And in our modern society, that, that population of men is relatively small. I also think beards. They have awesome beards. I think that's the secret, too. <laughs> well, but you know what? I mean, go to any church planters conference, and you're going to see some really righteous facial hair. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, the, my favorite, I had this, um, there's a Eastern Orthodox priest that reads the site, and he sent us a picture of him. He's like, this older guy had this awesome gray beard, and he had this giant kettlebell. Mm. Like and it was the it's the coolest picture. I'll have to post it on the the show notes for you guys to see it. It's a, a great great mm -hmm. picture, sort of showing the showcasing the 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 masculine vitality of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Well, Dave, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your book and your work? Um, I have a website, churchformen.com. Um, I'm also on the board of the National Coalition of Ministries for Men, which is ncmm.org. If you want to learn more about the the full constellation of what's going on in men's ministry, I'd highly recommend that you go visit NCMM. And uh, it's just a, it's a, we're over 200 organizations and individuals who are uh, pushing the men's ministry movement forward in the church. And um, yeah, 
so there's just there are a growing number of resources out there that are designed to help churches become more welcoming and friendly to men. Uh, my theory is has always been this: is I'm not out there to call men back to the church. I'm here to call churches back to men. And it's it's interesting, you know, just the smallest things that your church does to make churches uh, that make it more welcoming to men will pay huge dividends down the road. Um, in my book, I tell the story of a of a pastor's conference. Every uh, spring I do this pastor's conference down in Illinois. And one time I was speaking to this group of about 80 pastors. And I always throw out this junk question at the beginning. I say, um, any of you pastors ever, do any of you pastors have more active men than women in your church? And uh, nobody ever raises their hands. Well, this one particular time, this one teeny little hand rose up in the back and this particular hand had nail polish on it. And so I kind of looked and it's this petite woman, five foot two, who is, she's a female pastor in a Methodist church in the middle of a cornfield in a little town in Illinois. And I said, perhaps you didn't hear my question right. I asked if you have more active men than women in your church. She goes, oh, yes, I do. And I said, well, how on earth is that possible? I said, what's your name? She goes, oh, I'm, my name is Reverend Jennifer Wilson. I'm the pastor of, of uh, Grace United Methodist Church. And I said, you know, how is this possible? How do you have more men than women? And she goes, well, I read your book and I did everything you said. <laughs> so um, I later interviewed her, actually did a documentary about her, a 13-minute documentary called uh, Amazing Grace, a Church, a Church for Men. You can see it on YouTube or you can see it on my website. But what she did is she just began to make very man-friendly changes to her church. She repainted. She redecorated. She got the guys together on a regular basis. She designated a very strong guy as the men's ministry leader. Uh, started leading more dangerous missions into the urban areas around Chicago and Illinois, um, bigger vision type things, put TVs up in the sanctuary, uh, just, you know, you know, for projecting images, always plays videos off YouTube on Sunday, kept her sermons short. I mean, she basically created a more man-friendly environment. And in three years, her church doubled in size. She saw a, a huge growth among the young men. Um, so just these little cultural changes reaped huge benefits, even with a woman in the pulpit. So I would say that any church out there, no matter what your size, no matter what your polity, no matter what you preach, you have a, the, you have a very strong avenue for growth. If you'll simply create an environment where men will sit and stay long enough to hear the gospel and have their lives transformed. And that's what churches around the country and around the world are doing by focusing more on their men and boys. Fantastic. Well, David Murrell, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. My guest today was David Murrow. He's the author of the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also find more information about David's work at churchformen.com. Also, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Murrow, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you need any audio production needs or any audio editing needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. As always, we appreciate your continued support. One way you can do that is give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps out a lot. Thank you so much. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.